Yeah, when I come here or Arlington or Wiley or Plano to one of the other churches, my heart is really full um, of a lot of stuff. As I look around the room, most of you I don't know. And that's a really good thing. That says something about what God is doing here. Um, it's, it's almost like, you know, people that I've taught and studied with and I don't know their kids' names. And that makes me sad, but it's a good thing. It says that we're growing and that God is, is spreading here. So I want you to know I'm really honored to be here and that my heart is full and I have a ton of things that have gone through my mind. I, I sat and studied. I met with uh, Leslie and Josh on Wednesday and they were saying that they had done been doing... Um, a couple of sermons on uh, vision and mission, and I can see you're talking about values and um, those kinds of things, and, and ask me to maybe talk a little bit more about the family of churches. So that's where I'm headed uh, with this particular sermon. Um, one of the things that I uh, have been all along is um, a facilitator. Uh, I was the youngest of eight kids, and I had no power in that organization. My dad was very much a tyrant. Uh, he was, could be quite abusive. And, um, and then he set in order a hierarchical for, uh, formula in our family. So the oldest uh, sibling at home kind of got to choose everything. So, you know, when... We were all in the car. I got to sit in the back, middle, and on the hump. Uh, I, and that is the truth. Uh, and I was supposed to not touch anybody either sitting on the hump. Um, you know, I, I laugh about some of that. You have to laugh to keep from crying uh, because my overarching memory of growing up was being miserable. Uh, it's too hot, too cold getting mosquito bitten, you went to church, you got your ear flipped, church was awful. My mom got heart disease, was diagnosed with heart disease when I was in the first grade, and so for the next six years she died in front of us. And after my sixth grade year, she was dead, and the next six years were just the trauma of, you know, mom being gone. And I was in the home, a little bitty house. Uh, we were quite poor. My dad was an oil field worker. Uh, we... Uh, we went from 10 people in this house to two people in that house. Um, it was a very sad time um, growing up. And, and going to church, I went to try to find something. I mean, I was a bright kid. I was very observative. I kind of survived a lot of things by being wary and being aware. I'm sure some of you have been there. If you've been in a hard environment, uh, God's given us these uh, coping skills and even little kids start figuring things out. Uh, it has served me well because I would observe my family and over the years I made a lot of commitments of things I was going to do and things I wasn't going to do. Even thinking about being a dad. And, and I found myself kind of nurturing myself. I didn't, couldn't have put any of this in words back then. This is observation and perhaps uh, a, a, a very gracious observation of who I was. Uh, 
I saw a T-shirt quite a few years ago that said the the uh, the older I get, and in the back it said the better I was. I, I don't want to commit that. It's hard not to kind of see your past through this lens of learning and think, when did I think that or see that or do that? And most of our our thinking, well, all of it, is, is developmental. We have a thought, and then we build on it, and we build these constructs, and, and they become pretty uh, complex constructs in our life that we uh, are basically unaware of until later. But I did have these constructs of family, and I wondered what went on in the other families around. Um, very curious. Um, because in our home, there was a lock on it. You didn't talk to anybody about what went on. In abusive homes, it's almost always that way. So there's a clamp put down. So not only are you dealing with that, you're thinking, is this really abuse? Is this normal? Is this okay? And there were some really awful things that went on in our home, especially after my mother died. Um, and it... it it really affected me. But it did give me this sense of using my skills of what's going on to avoid a lot of pain. Uh, but being an assertive young guy with lots of opinions, um, sometimes it was like fire in my bones to quote Jeremiah. I couldn't shut up. Uh, and I wondered, you know, thinking it doesn't have to be this way. And when I went to college, I, I majored in chemistry and, and the sciences. I minored in the natural sciences, so I took a lot of science. And I also minored in education and psychology, so I took a lot of that. These were curiosities. I worked in the field for a while, and I've practiced the behavioral sciences now for the last 50 years, having been in ministry. And, and being friends with lots of people that are much more educated and trained uh, in the, the, the mental behavioral sciences, um, which has been helpful to me in um, helping people. But I, my freshman year, I got out, I just kind of ran. And I wasn't a wild kid. There were things I had decided uh, that I was never going to do. Um, my grandpa and several of my uncles were really bad alcoholics. My dad had been an alcoholic of some, uh, somewhat, and just until I was born, he quit drinking. Um, but I saw people drunk, and it was so um, disgusting to me, uh, these people that thought they were funny or smart or deep, and then you go in your freshman dorm, and it's like it really, it really is bad. Um, because often it's, you know, people not in their brightest moment getting drunk and then thinking they're smart and showing how dumb they are. Uh, that's just in my opinion here. But I, I didn't do that. But there was, there was that period my sophomore year, I went into a, a depression for the whole year. It's I was in that place. A lot of you, uh, I'm sure, have been in. It's like, is this it? Is this it? I, it was like, what? What? I, I needed a mission. I was a very purpose-driven kid. I remember lying in bed, uh, at least in junior high, thinking about life, thinking about, okay, when I graduate, I'm going to be 17, and this will be going on. And then when I'm 21, I'm going to finish college, and this will be going on. 
and I would think about a 25-year-old. And I, I had seen the whole gamut of my family. Um, there were a lot of things all of them did that I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, there was only one other member of my family that was not married uh, by the time they were 20. Um, I had one brother that had two children by the time he was 21 that everybody knew about, and then he had another one that people didn't know about. Um, it was these secrets and these things going on that were kind of yikes, but there were things I thought, I'm not going to do that. And I didn't. I wish there were other things that I had been taught It's a really bad idea. Uh, I wasn't, but I, I was a bit of a visionary. I would think about how things ought to be and how it could be. And so I accumulated that knowledge over the years. I got married at 24. Uh, I just finished my first master's and got married um, to a to Tana, whom I'd known since I was in the sixth grade and she was in the third. We did not start dating until she was 21 and I was 23 or something like that. And we got married and uh, I had a view of when we're going to have kids and how we're going to raise our kids. But my sophomore year, I hit the wall and started thinking about purpose. Now, I didn't have a Bible. Um, Church was very different back then. Uh, it was very denominated, lots of opinions. Most religious discussions were arguments, which were disconcerting. And for somebody that didn't know anything, I didn't want to engage anyway. But I would listen to these people argue that, you know, didn't have sense enough to brush their teeth sometime. And I'm just going, what is happening here? People you know, acting so smart about things that really early on you think, you, you don't know what you're talking about. And, and so that was the backdrop for that. I started my search then, my junior year in college, my physical chemistry professor made a comment about the plausibility of God. I was probably half asleep. I never remembered what he said. But it's like, here was a scientist espousing belief in God. And those two things were just completely separate for me. And faith was about a little fundamentalist church that I think I was glad we went to, but I certainly, you know, didn't want to be there. Church was not something that was central to our life. And when I was around friends, other friends, everybody just about was some kind of a Christian and wore their brand names proudly to school. We didn't know anything. We, we just argued ignorance or discussed ignorance, although I sat out of those arguments because I knew I didn't know anything, and I wasn't sure what I believed. My sophomore year was when it kind of culminated with this abuse and this pain and losing my mom and not really knowing anything, not having a Bible. I did what so many young adults do. I lost my faith. And it wasn't that I disbelieved, but it's I, I, I knew a lot of the questions. Now, you've got to understand, I started to college in 1970. Uh, during that time, the Vietnam War was going on. The Civil Rights Movement was going on. Fast forward, we had Watergate, which is tame compared to what we see now. 
Um, but there were riots and clamor, and there was social disorder that was crazy. Our world was changing rapidly and radically, and there was tremendous resistance against a lot of that change. So I started seeking God in that. Thinking about how should it be? I'm, I'm a liberal at heart in the sense of being progressive, but I would be seen as a conservative in heart in some ways to think, you know, not every change is good. And let's kind of pause and think about what we're doing. Because rarely do the crowds uh, uh, do much good. They stampede and hurt people. And, and so I started thinking about leadership. By the time I was uh, the start of my senior year, I'd studied through science in the Bible. I'd studied Christian evidence. I'd read most of the Bible. I'd poured over the Gospels because I, I fell in love with Jesus. His word, His way, it made sense to me. The letters you know, were hard. But, but what Jesus led me to was to look up and see the God of creation that John says that he was. So I started back to church. I got a calling in a very brief uh, spiritual moment uh, that God wanted me to do ministry, which was not in my plan at all. But there was this knowing, and God has given us this glorious freedom. I don't, I'm not a Calvinist per se. I believe God predestined some things, but I believe He's given each one of us tremendous freedom. I'm not downing the other if you believe that. I listened to a song this week that our sweet little friend Catherine Million sent me that said, what if we get to heaven and we're both wrong? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that's going to happen on a lot of things. And our best knowledge is going to fall so short of any understanding. And that's why we're going to fall down in amazement. And I can tell you in my own life, I've just been blown away by God. Just what God can do. And so I said yes. And, and committed my life to Christ in that time. And, and I'd been going to this to a little church. That's the only place I knew to learn about God. I was still reading from the King James Version. So I needed you know, some commentaries or something to help me interpret what the heck was first being said in English and then what it meant. And this little, uh, we had one of those student centers right across from uh, the campus. Uh, I've seen some around here. Uh, we had a little group of 13, 14 people there. But they had a library and had some books. And so I had access to something. That's when I discovered, uh, discovered Barclay's uh, commentaries, we call them. That's not their name. And I still love those and use those. So as I started studying just a little bit about history, you know, you read about from, from Adam kind of all the way up to Abram. And it's a, it's a short section of Scripture, actually. But it's a long time span that's telling this very amazing story. In fact, I believe that Genesis 1 to 3 really is the story of human history. 
And I believe the book of Job is, whether intentional or unintentional, and I think it's intentional, is written in the form of a play that, that shows the dilemma of humans and shows the span of human history. Not time to get into that. And I believe Jonah is this story. Again, whatever's real is fine with me. Uh, we need to get the point. And Jonah is the story of Israel. They were supposed to be a light to the whole world and they went the other direction. And God had to make them do what they were supposed to do. All the way up to Jesus being born. They were resisting every step of the way. And then Israel grows up from Abram. Abraham, his name would become. Uh, Isaac and Jacob. And you just see, you see where the, this nation of people that God kept doing amazing things for, and they just kept forgetting. And they were cranky, and they were malcontented, and they were being led by a, a, a pillar of cloud and fire. And they were picking up their food off the ground every night, and they were just having trouble seeing God. But they get into the promised land. God has to do a bunch of stuff. And instead of letting God be their king, they wanted to be like the Gentile nations. And God gave them a king and said, you're not going to like this. This is not going to go well, but I'll give you a king. And it didn't go well. They identified with the Gentile nations. Now fast forward to the church is formed in a very simple form in Jerusalem through the work of Jesus and the subsequent work of the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit through whom the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelt in them and begin to build the church. But it was messy. It was messy. The first church plant was just because the Spirit fell on people and it just happened. The, the apostles were still asking questions about the kingdom after Jesus had died. They still didn't know. And I think that's God's way. Let God lead. You need to get to the point of trusting Him. But in the middle of this big mess that Israel was with Rome ruling over them, in this crossroads of all these cultures and things going on, God plants His church. Guys, God chose to work in this mess. This world is not an accident. I can tell you story after story of people that Satan intended to own. And God did amazing things through them. Abram being one of them. His dad was an idolater. How the heck did he connect with Yahweh? But he did. And he did what God, God said. Go to a land, I'll show you. Can you give me the coordinates, please, God, so I can check it out? Got any brochures? I'm blown away by these people. And just... But here was one. That's why when we think about the church here, my story is not about a really smart guy. It's about a guy that wasn't just screwed up then, that's screwed up now. You don't get over that kind of stuff. I was sexualized from the time I was five and six. And I was abused by multiple people. You know? 
And Satan had me. And I've told this story before and I don't have time to go through the whole story, but a demon showed up in my life through a young man and told me that you were one of us and you've betrayed me and I'm going to destroy you. In this growling demonic voice that was horrifying. And our church didn't believe in demons, by the way. Just like they didn't believe in divine calling. And I'd been called and I'd had a demon talk to me and I felt out of place. I'm nothing but a dirt road kid that Satan intended to own. And God decided to do a little bit of something through me so that he would get the credit, not me. And that's just the truth. And that really is all of our story if we let it be. And there's this glorious freedom. God chose to work in this mess. He chose to work in this mess. And if you will turn loose and let God do His deal, He's good at what He does. And only He can defeat those demons. And in the name of Jesus, they march out because I have encountered demons twice more. And when I encountered the second one, it was through a pedophile and I felt called by God to ask the question. And I said, if there's a demon here, identify yourself. And this kid started shaking and hissing and just incoherent and looked up at me with this strange face and said, who are you? And I shuddered again. It wasn't as horrifying because I knew there were demons by this time and I knew they were sinister and they were mostly hidden. They didn't even want you to know they were there. That's why that one didn't want me to force its identity. I said, in the name of Jesus, identify yourself. And when He said, who are you? I said, I'm a disciple of Christ and I order you in His name to leave And this kid started looking down and started settling down and looked up at me with his face then and said, where did you learn to do that? Now, our battle is not against flesh and blood. If you're a liberal and you you are into social justice, your enemies are not the MAGA people. They're just not... Your enemies aren't in this room. The enemy lurks around all of us. And those forces drive lots of us to do crazy things. And we see that in the early church. The first mission work didn't start because they had a strategic planning conference. Philip, you know, went into Samaria where Jews didn't go. And there were Samaritans accepting Christ. So the apostles went over there. Well, and then, then there's Cornelius and Peter seeing, he's telling this Gentile about Christ and he had never eaten in a Gentile's home. And the Spirit of God fell on these Gentiles just like it had the apostles when he empowered them. And that's why he said, now, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people into Christ who have received the Spirit just like we have? And the people standing around. Mm-mm. And then this great persecution came on Jerusalem, and that's what caused the Christians to spread. And it says those that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. 
They just did out there what they were doing in Jerusalem. They were just telling what was happening. We think that we need to know more. Guys, we know enough gospel to win the whole world. We just need to let people understand that it's their gospel. That God will appropriate it to them. With the apprentices, we, I have them the first semester preach a sermon called, This is My Gospel. How did Jesus appropriate this great message of salvation to you? Because He meets you where you are. And then He walks with you. So when you look at the apostles' work, you just see God working through the messy. We, we tend to want to um, uh, kind of glamorize and idealize these early churches. When Paul writes to Rome, about half of it is he's ticked off about the Jews and their influence on these people he was preaching to. You get to a book like Galatians, and I mean, he is fiercely angry so that he would say, I'm hearing that some people are preaching a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, by the way. And then he said, if, you, if we or an angel from heaven come back and preach a different gospel, let them go to hell. That's the impolite version of anathema. Let them burn in hell. You can see the importance of the gospel to the people that have come to know God because the gospel says that our God is a good God full of grace and mercy, and He wants all men everywhere to be saved. And it's Satan that is this high and mighty God that makes us think that God is high and mighty. That's not. Our God is meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11. Jesus was the exact representation of God. You want to see what God looks like in human language? Just read about it. It's staggeringly different. And then you can begin to look through the eyes of Jesus at creation. And then you can read the whole Bible and see how radically unique and different and glorious He was. And you can see each story through the eyes of Jesus and relate to how He related to these kinds of things. You've got to get Jesus to get Jesus. And you've got to get Jesus to get church of Jesus. You know, when you go back through the history of Protestantism and evangelicalism, it's messy. (laughs) There was no strategic plan. This dude called Martin Luther was reading his Bible, God forbid, and said, wait a second, this doesn't look like my church. I'm reading about salvation by grace through faith, and my church is doing anything but that. I'm reading about everything has to go through this human institution. And as John would say, that to those who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of any human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And, oh, and that started this whole progression that we see. 
And just like God in the early church had worked in that mess, He's been working in this one. And He's been working in this one. And He's been working in a whole lot of you, too, who are messes. But that's the story. God raised us with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms so that in the coming ages He might demonstrate the unsearchable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us. When people see God working through one mess, they're going to think, well, gee, maybe He could work through me. Yeah. That's, good. That's our message. That's our Gospel. This is what I got. I was lost. I was a mess. I was growing up in the mess of Christianity in fundamentalism, legalism, And God saved me in the middle of that and saved me through it. He saved me through it. I owe my soul to some people that I would not want to be in those churches ever again. But God used that mess. Which is a part of this mess. Which is a part of the creation. Which because of Satan being thrown down to the ground to breathe dust as we await for the sun to finally crush his head. We're going to work with a serpent crawling around seeking to devour people. Well, when I went to church, I I just got sucked into stuff. I got elected the vice president of that student group I wasn't a believer. I didn't even know how to tell anybody. There were, I didn't know any atheists in my world, and we didn't talk about it. And I accepted that because there were only three guys there, and only guys in that you know a church could be an officer. And I, you know, vice presidents don't do anything, and so I accepted it. And then found out after, oh, I'm in charge of two devotionals a week, planning them. That's God's got a sense of humor. <laughs> the way He shapes us. Each one of us, if you look, you'll see Him shaping you. He's shaping you even now to give you your best shot. And then the president asked me if I would help teach his junior high class. And I thought, well, I, I can do that because I really didn't want to sit through something. And so it was just after a month or two, he quit. And I'm with all these little junior high kids, so I am literally reading a Bible storybook to teach junior high kids. But I was taken aback at how dead they were. I thought church people were all excited and knowledgeable. These kids did not want to be there. I had another stint of working with some of them as teenagers, and it was worse. And then I became a campus pastor there And I got to see the result of these kids that were coming from all these churches. And how empty and unbelieving and just wicked and sneaky so many were. And then I started looking at the stats and seeing the Christian church then was losing nearly 75% of its kids when they left home. I got to work with preacher's kids who broke into my office not just once, but twice, trying to steal stuff. One of the times they were looking for money, 
And so every envelope in my office, instead of looking in it, they just tore it part of the way. I had an office full of envelopes with papers and they just torn. Preacher's kid. I could go on. And I'm saying it doesn't have to be this way. It was an all-white church. Now God had, God had integrated our school when I was in the eighth grade. And that was this very fortunate thing because I, our world was very racist. Now, my home didn't just hate black people. We hated Jews. We hated anybody that did not have our last name. And my dad tried to program us that way. He wanted us to hate people. And, you know, but our mom was very different. She came out of the Midwest Methodism. And she set a very different example of life. And she loved people. And she, she cared about people. And she served people. And I wish I had time to tell you those stories. She took our TV to a black repairman in that town that got consolidated. And I got to watch them talk. They were on friendly terms. If my dad had seen that, that would have not been good. She was who she was, but she was gone. And so, you know, seeing those two things going on, having that happen, coming to college my freshman year, the, the, the uh, we called them student assistant, the, the, in the dorm on our floor uh, was a black guy. And he was a deep guy. And I was a freshman, he was a senior, but we connected. And we had talks. I don't know how many, but I got to ask him about the black experience. And it was, even then, made me just want to cry. And then he asked me about the white experience. Oh, we just grew up about 40 miles from each other. I was so ashamed to answer his questions. But when I became campus minister, which would be seven years after that, God opened the door. There was a, there was a pocket of black kids on campus, probably 250 out of about 3,500 on that campus. It's in Durant, not far north of here. And... He opened a door and we became the campus ministry for the black kids. And so our ministry was a third black. Out of about 75 students, we had about 25 black, 25 white, and 25 other. I even had five Muslim guys from Iran that were coming to our activities. And I studied with them and talked to them. So I heard about the Middle Eastern experience. I got my first... Experience. They were, they were the nicest guys that I knew. If I came over, they were so hospitable. They were so excited. They were offering me fruit and food and treated me like, you know, I was a king. And I'm thinking, something is wrong with this picture. And, and that's what God did. But we were in an all-white church. I thought, it doesn't have to be this way. 
Helping people, being servants as leaders, it doesn't have to be this way. Church doesn't have to be about we're right with God because we're right. Church ought to be about we're, we're right with God because we believe He's good and Jesus demonstrated that and our job is to love one another fiercely and to love the world unconditionally. But what do we get known for? We're anti-abortion. That's, that's what Christians are known for. What we're against. We're against gay marriage. You know, I want, I want to scream and say, those people don't speak for me. But, you know, this mess, Satan makes sure the world listens. All along the way, I've seen people of God in all kinds of shapes and forms that had hearts fiercely for God. And in all of the churches I've been a part of and been around or experienced, God always has some people there. In the worst church, you just see some people there. You just get up and share your story and they would just kind of make their way up there and, you know, God shows up. All those experiences progressed through leaving the Bible Belt and that church going to Colorado as a campus pastor, thinking churches are not built for campus ministry. They just screw it up. And so I took a group of people, moved to Arizona through an act of God, and started a church. And that's where my calling to plant churches and drive campus ministry came very clear. But not where I was. So I, I asked God there to help me stop loving the world, and so he had some stuff there to do, and he did that. And <coughs> ten years later, I didn't love the world anymore, and he started Northeast Church. Now again, I could tell you a whole lot more. I've told the Garland Church, if you think what I'm telling you about these visions and these messages I've received are bogus, you ought to get up and walk out. I'm a fraud. Wisdom, though, is proved right by our actions. Remember your leaders, dot, dot, dot. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And if it lines up with Jesus, imitate their faith. I've tried to live that way before the family of churches. I've tried to open my life completely. And anybody that knows me will know I've never sold myself off as good or worthy. I've just told people I was called. That's all I got. If I'm wrong, my whole life is deceived. But I don't think if you looked at my life and looked at the trail behind me, that's the story that you would come to. Because on my worst days, God was touching people, and I look all the way back to when I was a kid. I believe God had His hand on me when I was a little boy. That He he looked out for me. You know? I was called from my mother's womb. God chose to work through this mess. I have a choice. Don't hear me say I'm special because I'm good. I don't know. 
I wrote a poem this last week. I said, I've never understood it all. And I don't. Now, the principle of family of churches. We started Garland down in a little industrial district. We were first in a warehouse even farther down in Dallas. And I told them God has called me to plant churches and drive campus ministry. Now, if you want me to be the pastor of your church, then that's the journey we're going on. Leslie and Kirk could tell you I've never wavered in that. And there's been plenty of opposition, lots of people thinking I was utterly crazy. But that was the calling. And that's still the calling. And if you're a part of the family of churches, as long as this church chooses to be, there is a bigger scheme from God going on that's bigger than me and bigger than you and bigger than the church. If you want a traditional church, they're dotted all around here. But most of the churches are losing 75% of their children. What does that say? Our own kids that are watching us aren't buying our gospel because I think they don't think it's any gospel at all. You decide that. But what, what these axioms you will hear around, if you're around me, you're going to hear a whole lot of things said a whole lot of times over and over and over. I don't have anything new. <laughs> I find something I think is good and pithy and impressive and I just say it a whole lot. If you can't be good, you better sound good or look good. So I can't be good and I can't look good, so I'm going to try to sound good. No, it's the best of big and the best of little. That's what we're doing. Denton North is a completely independent church. You could be sitting here right now watching a video of me up here on this screen and have some lackey here running the campus. If I sound a little cynical, it's because I am a little irritated by a whole lot of stuff right now with church. This colonization, this preacher's making a name for themselves. Guys, the church has the Tower of Babel syndrome. Humans were told to be fruitful and to spread out and, and populate the earth. And they said, oh no, let's, let's stick together because we like big. We're really proud. Look at us. We're, we're the roots of Babylon. Never went well for them. Oh, we'll build a tower to heaven. I do not think they were trying to reach God. I don't even think they cared about God. I think they built a great big memorial. They built a great big temple, a great big church to try to placate God. We've got the biggest cross on the highway. We're not obeying God, but man, we've got a big old tower here. God. We wrote His name on it. I don't know. But that's what we're doing. We're staying together. Church planting is about doing what we're doing. You have a whole different praise team up here. You have different preachers up here. You have Denton people. We, 
You've got a past. You've got pastors here. As a family of churches, we're just here to back you up. That's why I'm here. You don't pay me. I I couldn't care less. Any one of you could call me in the middle of the night and I would answer the phone unless I was being stupid and left the ringer off for some reason, which happens occasionally. I would gladly answer your call. If God's on call, shouldn't I be? Now, we train people. Don't be stupid and just wake people up in the middle of the night. I'm not God. But that's what we do. When you guys are ready for a kids camp, we got one. When you're ready for a teen camp and a teen ministry, we've got one. You're hearing about track. That's my last big vision for this church. We've been on campus and we need to be there. Track is a ministry for non-college students that we need to have. They really don't fit in focus. But we've got the resources now. And, and I want to challenge the churches to go after so many of these young adults who get out and they're not on track. And they get sucked into all kinds of junk. Let's have something for at least our own graduates when they get out that don't want to go to college and the college enrollment is going down and this segment is getting bigger. So... That's, you're going to hear about that. You don't have to have it. We're going to have a track event on February the 11th. If any of you want to come, it's going to be out on the freeway in Garland, but we're trying to propagate this in all of our ministries. Because we want to go into the alleys and the backwoods and be compelling to reach people that nobody else wants. Because they're not white, upper, middle class people in the suburbs that clean up and give good money. Now we need to reach white people out in the suburbs, don't get me wrong. But while everybody else is moving further and further out, we're going to move further and further in. Amen? That's what we're going to do. Our churches will never be impressive to big church if you stay on this course. We're not going to dress like it. We're not going to act like it. We're going to have those awkward, uncomfortable conversations. We're going to have people from our church that post stuff and you're going, what? And I know that all of one side or the other is going to be ticked off. Because i got a place at the table. And we're going to talk. And we're going to learn from each other. And we're not going to be far right or far left. We're going to do what we do to help people because Jesus wants us to, not because it's cool. And we're going to hold our ground on certain things because Jesus wants us to, and we're not just going to be cool. We're going to work in this mess. We'll always be in the minority. But we can grow beneath the surface. I believe that the day will come that Focus has a mission on every campus in the Metroplex. I believe that. If we can do what we've done, we can do that, but we're going to have to replicate. But Focus needs churches that are built to partner with them, 
to build this loop, their graduates can get out and continue to try to figure out how do we do this outside of campus. Well, a lot of you, we want to involve you with reaching out and mentoring non-college students, many of whom are real lost. They're your waiter, waitress. They're the dude at AutoZone selling you a battery. They're the guy cutting your grass. They're immigrants. A lot of them not legal. They're rich kids. They're poor kids. We're equipped to help. I want to challenge you guys to do that. Now let me just end with a couple of things. That's what family of churches is. Who do you want? What do you want? What do you need? We're not asking you to take half your church and go plant a church. Wiley kind of led a church plant into Plano and we sent 25 of our best there. Ask them, of course. We started church in Arlington. We sent 15 of our best. That's how we are going to plant churches is together. Help each other. If nothing more, just pray about it. (laughs) Just pray for them. Be there for them. A church doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to have a building. The church really started its first apostasy when they built buildings. So be happy. Arlington asked me, what do you think about a church with mainly people in their 20s? I said, well, do you want one that's mainly in its 60s? What I think is future. Grow it. Grow it. Nurture it. You be God's people. And you'll wake up and something will happen because God chooses to work in this mess. We're Christ-centered. We're Christ-principled. We're mission-driven. The principles, we're going to love each other. You go into most churches, you would have to guess if they really loved each other. Everybody stand up and greet their neighbor. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just we did communion and you guys were... You like each other. You know each other. That's what we're supposed to be known for. Love for each other and love for the world. Yeah. Not how right we are. Oh, how good our preachers. I go there because I like the preaching. Well, bless your heart. Let's just serve you. I like the music. Oh, so they're worshiping you? The music was supposed to be us looking at each other, singing to each other, teaching each other in song, not performance. Can't go there. We're going to be loving. We're going to be humble. We're not you. I told them years ago, if you ever see my picture on a billboard, commit me to a psych ward because I have lost it. Uh, That's going to draw them. I like the ones where they have people lovingly looking at those. What are we doing? If I drive up to a church and the pastor has a parking spot by the front door, unless I have to be there, I'm going to make a U-turn and leave. That ought to be for people that need to be by the front door. The pastor ought to be parked out in the corner out there. He's the only one getting paid to be there. Think? Why are you getting privilege? 
humility, submission, surrender, controlled, but not controlling. Jesus didn't control people. There's room to grow and think and struggle and that's the that's the world. It's it's a mess. Unified under Christ, we will not in any of our churches that I have a role in tolerate disunity. Now you can disagree all day long, but you can't be disagreeable because that's a big deal to Jesus. And what's a big deal to Him is a big deal to us. We're going to be joyful and hopeful in the worst of times. Guys, if, you, if you're on social media all the time, stop. It's hard for us to counter this inflammatory, negative, toxic poison. Say, by what children like this? What are, we, what are we mad about today? We're mad about somebody, some policeman that one more that abused some black person. But we, yes, let's fix that. Let's work on that. Let's not tolerate that as a people. That's not Christian. But we forget all the policemen that don't do that. The mother that abused her kids, we forget all the moms that got up today and just worked their tail off to take care of their kids. We're going to be joyful and we're going to be hopeful. And we're not going to focus on the mess on the ground. We're going to focus on the God above. Because that's where we're going. And He's going to fix all this. And I believe that. We're going to be thankful. We're going to be servant-hearted. I appreciate Calissa bringing that up. I told Grant when we were talking, and I tongue-in-cheek said years ago about men in our church that the first requirement for a man to be a leader in this church is to clean the urinals. Not by force. I want to see what they pick when cleanup day comes. Easy jobs? No. The urinals, the restrooms. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go and serve people. We're going to help people. We're going to empower people. That's why we empower people. All of our entities are completely independent with their own leader teams. People say, what are we going to do if Denton becomes gay affirming? I don't know. We'll talk about it, I guess. We've been gay accepting for a long time around here. Who we condemn anybody? We probably have more same-sex attracted people per capita than any church I know of. That's more evangelical. I don't know. Control, but not controlling. We're going to talk about it. Kind, gentle, patient, real, sincere, full of integrity, patient, persevering, and incredibly generous. One of the things that in talking to Kurt and Leslie, I asked them about this week was finances. There are two things that I see that reflect Jesus, if I can see it, it'll always be in somebody deeply devoted to Jesus. And one is they're incredibly generous. They don't own anything. And the other is they love little kids. 
Jesus loved little kids. You guys, I could say a whole lot more, and you say, obviously you could. I didn't ask them how long I had because I'm old and inappropriate and could talk the rest of the day. But the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. But anyway, I want you to know that I and a bunch of other people are praying for you, rooting for you. We're doing ministry with a lot of you. We're available. We're for you. And when you post some of those inappropriate posts you post, I defend you. (laughs) Chelsea. Talk about a troublemaker. She and I have been kindred spirits for a long time. God, I want to pray for this church. I pray that you be their Lord, you be their King, you be their leader, and that you anoint them and help them to be a blessing and to be blessed in being a blessing to the world around them. And you grow it according to your will and your way. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.